This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 556, a conversation with Tim Toohey. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 556. It's my conversation with Tim Tui. Tim Tui worked at, uh, at Marvel Comics in the 90s. Um, for those who were kind of reading at that time, he uh, was a jack-of-all-trades kind of editor jumping here and there. We talk extensively about his career at Marvel at the time and the different books he worked on, working on the Punisher books, uh, working on the Punisher uh, crossover Suicide Run. Uh, we also talk about his time editing the uh, magazine for that went on about two and a half years called Marvel Vision, uh, which I have a lot of strong memories with, and I definitely really enjoyed uh, at the time I think when it came out I was probably 14 15 years old so I was kind of it was kind of perfect for someone trying to get in um, who didn't have internet access because internet wasn't again prevalent at the time and being able to read solicits and read interviews and kind of hyping up new Marvel projects was really exciting and uh, so I got to talk with Tim about what it was like putting together that book Um, it's actually a fun conversation as we kind of talk about some of the features that were in that uh, which ones came from him which ones came from Jim Kruger who uh, he was kind of collaborating with as well on that book so that was a great part of the conversation we also talk a little bit about daredevil uh, as he did uh he did edit daredevil right before uh, it ended and made way for the marvel knights uh, reboot um i also want to point people to an amazing interview he did a few years ago i think it was 2011 uh with the, the man without fear website uh, run by Kuljit mithra um he did a fantastic interview with with tim uh, that really went into uh what it was like working on daredevil at that time um how you know he kind of inherited a late mess of a book with a, a you know kind of a messy script that seemed to misunderstand its character and how he kind of had to uh, soldier on. Uh, so it's a, it's a really illuminating interview on what what the process of editing a book was like, especially in the 90s when Marvel at times was in a bit of disarray and things were, you know, not not the most cohesive uh, and how editorial and, and the ability and power empowerment of editorial was changing. Uh, so he kind of gets into a lot of that in the interview and specifically talking about what it was like when Marvel would kind of uh, farm out books like Heroes Reborn or even what eventually became Marvel Knights uh, as opposed to maybe trusting their own editors. It's a really, again, I, I think it's a really entertaining and interesting interview and uh, definitely helps inform my conversation with with, uh, with Tim as well, because I, I definitely refer to it at, at a few points. Uh, so it helps if you maybe want to pause this, go back, read that amazing interview, and then come back here, and it definitely helps uh, inform uh, some of the conversation that we have. We ended up, I think we, we thought we might uh, talk for about an hour, and it went almost two hours. Uh, it was a very enjoyable conversation. I was really glad that uh, Tim was able to time take time out and uh, have a conversation with me. So uh, I hope you really enjoy it. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, and subscribe to us on iTunes and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, upcoming episodes, we will be. I will be sitting down with Brian Cronin from uh, Comic Book Resources, who does uh, a lot of amazing columns and, and features uh, that have featured at uh, CBR over the years. His his biggest one is uh, Comic Book Legends Revealed, um, which is like amazing reading and uh, he's generated two books that have kind of come around from that so I'm really excited to chat with him that's coming up this coming week I'm also going to be sitting down with Cal Dodd Cal Dodd is the uh the original voice of Wolverine from the uh, X-Men animated series from 1992. I'm really psyched about sitting down with him. I'm still working on times to talk with the actually producer of that book, I'm sorry, that book, of, of that uh, of that series as well. That will be coming out later March. Um, we're going to have a, another sit-down with Engelhart soon. We're going to be speaking with... Um, 
Oh, Norm Bregfogel. So a lot of exciting stuff coming up in the next few months. But uh, for now, the next two episodes are Brian Cronin and Cal Dodd. Um, and then uh, then we'll kind of jump into more interviews as the uh, – I, I used to say the, the interview season, the, the spring interview season. I think that was two years ago when that started. So uh, hopefully it will keep on going and we'll have some uh, some great new interviews uh, for you guys to listen to. But without further ado, after four, you know, four minutes of listening to me prattle on, let's jump right into the conversation with Tim Tui. Tim, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I've been uh, looking forward to this because uh, you are you're the man responsible for a huge part of how I really got into understanding more about comics, which was Marvel Vision. Oh, very good, very good. Which I don't know if many people like talk to you about Marvel Vision these days. Um, it comes up rarely, but interestingly, um. People like to know what my ideas were behind it, how it got started, how it ended, why it ended. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of things. Well, I guess I will get to all those questions. But first, I kind of want to know, uh, I mean, before you started working for Marvel, what was your kind of uh, childhood experience with comic books in general? What kind of drew you into the field? Um. I always liked comics, um, gigantic Batman fan, um, I still have the first Batman that I ever bought, uh, and then... Which one was know, it? Which one was it? Sorry. Um, it was, it was that one Christmas issue where he's there on the cover, dressed up as Santa Claus, and on the other side of the door is the bad guy. And basically the story revolves around um, Batman chasing down this criminal who's just trying to get uh, stuff for his daughter for Christmas Eve. Um, I don't know where it is. I, I can actually look it up while we're talking because we're not, you don't, you can't see me and I've got my entire comic book collection on my phone. <laughs> I'm one of those. So that was... That was like the start of it, and then as cliche and a gigantic Fantastic Four fan, um, actually the first issue of the Fantastic Four that I ever bought was number one sixty six. That one I do remember the number. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the one with the cover where the Hulk is on the ground and he's just uh, wrecked a plane, and the thing is falling down with a big huge punch coming for him. Um, and then again as cliche as this is going to sound my life changed with X-Men 141 and 142 nice Uh, it it, uh, you know it's it's a cliche everybody said it that something but those two issues literally changed my life changed everything how I looked at comics and I said um, I want to do comics. I want to do them. I will do them. It will happen. Um, it's Batman Volume One, Number Two Thirty Nine. Nice. Batman and Robin. So that was the first one I ever got. Um. So it was. I, I want to say that it was the Days of Future Past story that did it really, but it was. John Byrne, um, just everything about John Byrne was just phenomenal to me. 
I then went and you know sought out everything that John Byrne ever did. Uh, and then actually met John at a comic convention as a fan, got his autograph, and then when I was working at Marvel for Terry Cavanaugh, uh, we went to John Byrne's house in Connecticut, and I got to actually have lunch with John Byrne and talk about Namor. Oh, wow. It was pretty wild. I was going to say, was that kind of like a kind of a crazy experience to you know to have this person who kind of changed your life in a big way just because of, of his creative work, and now you're you're chatting about Namor with him. It was it was it was goofy. Um, it was me. It, it was it was Terry Cavanaugh and Mark Powers in the front seat. They had rented out a car, so it was Terry Cavanaugh and Mark Powers in the front seat, and me and Jay Lee in the back seat, <laughs> and we're driving to Connecticut. And we start getting to uh, the block of John's house. And Jaylee and I are in the back seat, and we start doing the nervous rubbing of the palms on our pants. <laughs> and it was the goofiest thing. I don't know if I don't know if John rehearsed it or whatever, but something out of a dumb rockwell painting. He's there on his front lawn, throwing a ball to his dog. (laughs) And he turns around and he's like, hi. And we're just like, it's John Byrne. It's John Byrne. Oh my gosh, it's John Byrne. (laughs) And he took us into his house and his one room, the, the, the living room was nothing but floor to ceiling bookcases and then his studio was up in the attic or the top most floor of the house. And going up the stairs were all framed covers. And he had in a row, in order, going up the covers to Man of Steel 1 to 6. Oh, wow. So that was like... Yeah, I'm done. I, I can I can go away now. I'm happy. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. Yeah. It's interesting. Just this is a, as a quick aside. I mean, a, as a fan of John Burns, it'd be cool to be able to see those in a row. But what does it say for vanity when that's your own work? Um, I don't know. I I I don't know. I've like for the longest time I actually ha- I didn't it was it wasn't even my work though I had a um an ad for the Star Trek issue that I that I inked um up on my wall cuz it had my name on it um if I if I were somebody and I got to redo something like Superman I probably would have the same yeah I it, it's Superman. It's, hey, hey, we're going to give you carte blanche and we're going to let you throw away whatever it was at the time, 40 years. And you can just redo it and have at it. And it was, I, I, I have those. And it was, I would, I would probably do it. I would. <laughs> I, I would. 
as a fan of John Burns, as someone who'd been collecting kind of old stuff, and again was this kind of huge moment for you. What was the, as a fan at the time? Um, what was it like when Man of Steel came out? I got everything that I could related to it. I had the Time magazine with Superman. Um, I think that was the Jerry Ordway, John Burr. I, I, I think it was, but it was the article in there. Um, being, it was a really weird um, thing for me because he was, for me, the Marvel guy. Mm. And then he became the DC guy. You know, Batman's always been popular, but not then. And it was Superman. And I liked Superman for a long time. And then John Byrne was doing Superman. So it was very, it was very interesting. I got them all, read them all. Um, Mike Carlin uh, became one of my editorial idols when he was working on the Superman books of how he did the all the books interlocked perfectly. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I have stuck with John through thick and thin. Um, I have all of the new stuff that he's done for IDW. Um, I've got the Dark Horse stuff. I've got his one-shot Aliens Earth Angel that he did. Yeah. So, yeah, I... Yeah, I can't quit, John. I can't. <laughs> That's okay. And I guess, did you... Have you gone back and collect everything you kind of missed before your, your entry point? Uh, oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I have... I have a full run of his X-Men. I've got a full run of his FF. I've got his Space 1999 stuff. I've got the reprints of his Doomsday Plus One. Um... The Charlton stuff, the Raj 2000. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. How do you feel about the, uh, um, this is off topic from where I was going to go, but how do you feel about the upcoming, I guess, what is it, the IDW Artifact Edition for uh, his X-Men stuff? Um, I have a running joke with Scott Dunbeer, and every time he posts something new, I just say, I hate you and take my money. <laughs> it's just, I hate you and take my money. I've got... Like, you can't see it, but behind me on my floor, I've got, like, the boxes of the art, the artist, artist editions, um, the Simonson one, mm. the Marvel Covers one. I Yeah, I devour those things. The, the, the oh my gosh, the uh, Al Williamson Empire Strikes Back. Oh, yeah. um, I got to work with and meet Al, so I actually have an Al Williamson right in front of me that I'm looking at. Um, that was amazing. Yeah, I had a good time. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let's, let's go back way back. So how do you, how, how do you entry, how do you enter into Marvel? I mean, I have an idea cause I've read the, the amazing interview that you did with man without fear a few years ago. But, uh, for those who haven't read that, how did you kind of enter into the Marvel scene in terms of actually working there? Okay. So I was in college and reading Marvel age 
and I'm flipping through the Marvel Age magazine, and there was literally an ad for college interns. And in the ad was actually Marvel's phone number. And Which is just crazy. I, I, just crazy now. And I just said, what the heck? Let me call it. So I called the number, and I got a voicemail, and I left a message. Didn't, did not expect anything from it. I didn't. About two days or so later, I get a call back from Mary McFerrin, who said that the intern program was pretty much done for that semester, but she liked the professional way I left the voicemail. Would I be willing to come in for an interview? And I said, yes. (laughs) So I got my portfolio. I went to 387 Park Avenue South. I got off on the uh, 10th floor. Uh, First thing you see was that at the time was that gigantic uh, plexiglass Spider-Man that they had up on the, on the wall. So that was a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Sat down on the couch. She came out, introduced herself, brought me in to the like office area. And she said that she wanted me me to meet two people. They were in an editorial meeting in Mark Grunewald's office. I said, okay. So when the meeting was done, she introduced me to Fabian Nicieza. And he and I talked for about five or ten minutes. And then she introduced me to Don Daly. And Don and I probably talked for about 20 minutes he introduced me to his assistant, Kevin Kobasik, and then looked at me and said, do you want to work for me? And I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that was that. And I had to call my school, tell them that I got the Marvel internship. And I think I was working three days a week at Marvel going to school, working a part-time job, and just learning everything that I possibly could about the business. Wow. That's amazing. It was interesting. Um, Funny thing is, uh, another intern at the time uh, was, um, oh my gosh, I just blanked on his name. Battle Chasers. Oh, uh, Joe, oh, Joe Matarera. Yeah. Joe Matarera and I were both interns at the same time. <laughs> and I actually inked a, um, North star thing that he was peddling around to try to show people that he had talent. It's oh, quite wow. humorous. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So when you start working for for daily, like when does it transition to I'm not just an intern anymore. Now I'm actually part of the staff. Um, I was Don's intern for about six months, and then the semester ended, and I was no longer an intern because it had to be by my college. So. There was another internship offering with Terry Cavanaugh. 
I went to my college and said, I really want this. And they said, no. Oh. <laughs> they, they said, no. I said, what are you talking about? We think you should have different experiences. And I said, no. <laughs> this is what I want to do with my life. I'm paying you. You're not doing any work. I mean, I mean, I, I was younger and way more brash. But I'm like, let me get this straight. You're going to take a semester's tuition out of me and you're not, you're literally doing nothing. <laughs> you, you don't do anything. I'm the one that has to go into Manhattan every day. I'm the one that has to work. And they're like, all right, let the kid have it. <laughs> so I started working for Terry Cavanaugh. At that time, uh, Jim Lee was working on X-Men. Terry's office was right next to Ramita's Raiders. And I watched Jim pencil some of the first pages of X-Men number one. Oh, my God. Terry gave me my first paid inking job. uh, A thing story in Marvel Comics Presents. So Terry was Terry was funding my college education. And about two months into that internship, there were rumors that Kevin, Don's assistant, was going to go freelance. So I kind of said to Don, you know, I would like that job at some point and think about it. And he's like, all right, I'll, I'll consider it. And then what I didn't know was that behind my back, he had already talked to Terry about hiring me. So if I remember correctly, Terry came to me one day and said, Don wants to talk to you. Go down to his office. I said, okay. And I mean, it was no big deal. I mean, I would go down to everybody's office for like whatever. And Don sits me down and Kevin is there and he goes, you know, Kevin's going freelance. I said, yeah, congratulations, Kevin. Good luck. And Don looked and he goes, you want his job. (laughs) And I went, I'm sorry. What did you say? He goes, do you want his job? Yeah. Are you going to think about it? Yeah, I thought about it. I want it. (laughs) And, um, there was some paperwork. I remember, um, Tom DeFalco didn't really want me to have his job because I was still in college and to Tom's credit, um, he wanted me to finish college, Hmm. but he knew that, um, Don and I would be a good fit. So I think it was 90, uh, fall semester. So somewhere in 91, I went on staff as an assistant editor. What, that, what was that like? I mean, obviously working for Don, you're in the, I guess, the Punisher office for the most part, right? Punisher, Sleepwalker, Punisher Armory, uh, and the NOM. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Yes. Don, to his credit, um, I was a little older than the other interns. Um, and then I was a little older than some of the other assistants and Don gave me a lot of responsibility and he let me edit Punisher War Journal and the NOM basically by myself. 
Oh, wow. That's, that is a lot of responsibility. It, it, it was. And it, um, some people did not look very favorably upon that. Um, because there were some who thought assistants were basically just glorified interns. And the point of being an assist, the point of being an intern is to learn the assistant's job. And the point of being the assistant is to learn the editor's job. So you can hopefully, you know, progress and go up the ladder. Um, I wanted to go up the ladder. This is what I wanted to do. Um, so I, you know, dove in head first, you know, anything that I could do, I did. And I was, I had the record at the time. I'm sure that doesn't exist anymore because I don't even think they pay attention to that stuff anymore because the books are so all over the place. Um, you were supposed to get a book to the shipping, to the manufacturing department at eight weeks from on sale date. I got an issue of Punisher War Journal to them at 12 weeks. <laughs> and they're like, can you just hold on to this for four more weeks? I said, yeah, sure, I could do that. Um, <laughs> when the NOM was canceled, this is the, I actually told my students this story uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, but I cleaned one word up. Um, when Punisher... When the NOM got canceled, I had already commissioned a three-part Punisher Invades the NOM story. And they had decided to make it into a bookshelf. So we got um, Joe Kubert to do chapter break art. I got to meet Joe Kubert. Wow. And, and um, it was my first kind of like real editor title. I mean, in the book it says de facto editor, but everybody's, everybody knew it was me. I wrote the afterward or forward. I don't remember. I wrote something long about it. And we were in Don's office. We were in the office and I was standing there doing something. And DeFalco walks in and he goes, and he's got it in his hand and he goes, Tui. I go, Tom, what do you call this? And I'm I'm looking at him, and I'm starting to sweat because I had a I had a healthy fear of Tom. <laughs> and I go, um, the Punisher invades the non bookshelf. No, 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 no. What do you call this? And now I'm really sweating, and I go, ah, oh, um. The, the, the last three issues of the NOM with the Punisher in it, I, 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 you know what I call this? I call this a damn good book. <laughs> and he turned and he walked out. And I just looked at Daly and he's laughing, laughing. And I go, did you know he was going to do this? He goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We could for a week. I'm like, I hate you. <laughs> that's that's funny. Tom was Tom. Tom's a great guy. I Tom, I'm you know. I look back at him. Him not wanting me, to, not wanting me to go on staff because he wanted me to be in college. And I understand that at the time. 
And then when I finished college and became a teacher, uh, I saw him again and um, his wife was a teacher. And he said to me, he, we were at the, that Mark Grunewald um, reunion thing they had in Manhattan a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. He comes up to me again. He goes, Tui. I go, Tom. He goes, I hear you're a teacher now. I'm like, yes, I am, Tom. He goes, my wife would be proud of you. And I went, I don't know what to say to that. Thank you. <laughs> and I looked at my wife and I'm like, am I crying? She goes, yeah, a little bit. I said, okay. So, yeah. Wow. Tom. Mm-hmm. Definitely a larger than life guy, right? Yes, he is. <laughs> so that was me being an assistant. No. And wh- then, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, during this time, like, it's so, like, you're de facto basically just editing the NAM and Word Journal on your own. What was it like being able to kind of do that? I mean, you're you're learning how to kind of be an assistant, but you're also being able to take the lead on these two books and kind of uh, learn how to actually be an editor on the kind of the fly. Like, you, you still have John there, but you're doing it on your own. What What is that like, and what does that kind of look like as you're kind of figuring it out? Um, I'm talking to the freelancers. I'm talking to Chuck Dixon. I'm talking to Gary Quapis, um, the letterers, the colorists. I'm doing all this sort of stuff. Um, the artist of the Punisher Invades the Nam, uh, if I remember correctly, he lived in South America. So that was an interesting situation. When I was editing the Nam, um, it was, you know, um, Wayne Van Sant was writing it. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. No, Wayne Van Sant was drawing it. I can't remember off the top of my head who was who was writing it. But, of course, since I have my handy-dandy phone thing with me, <laughs> I say the Nam, and I forget who was, who was, who was writing it. Oh, my gosh. I You know, I can... Off the top of my head. Oh my gosh. I don't even know what, how it's not. Oh, because it's probably up here. Here it is. The NAM. The NAM issues that I was editing was written, were written by Don Lomax. That's right, Don Lomax. Gotcha. So I was talking to him, doing all of that, learning. And then at the time, we had our own intern. So now I'm teaching the intern what I used to do. Um, so it was it was fun. Uh, I, I would get the story from Chuck. I would read it. I would make my markups, anything that I wanted. I would show it to Don. And Don would either agree or correct my corrections or make suggestions. Um. Then we would get the artwork, and I would go over the artwork, and Don would agree or make suggestions for me. And it was it was always doing, always learning, always something. Something had to be done. So it was. We did a lot of work, a lot of work. In these early years, you also, I guess, um, as part of the, the Punisher office, you guys had kind of a, a Punisher crossover between all, all your titles, Suicide Run. What was it kind of like coordinating that, even though it was still within your own office? Now you have different titles kind of feeding into this bigger storyline. Suicide Run was very interesting. 
Suicide Run was originally supposed to be called Cop Killer. Um, Tom nixed that title instantly. <laughs> instantly. Um, our argument was that the cop is bad. He was a bad cop. But he nixed it instantly, became Suicide Run. So you had all the Punisher titles and other titles uh, getting together. I'm pretty sure that that was when I first met Larry Hama. I mean, Hama used to come around the offices all the time. Um, but that was when you know I got to sit down with Larry <clears throat> and talk and discuss things. Um, Inter-title inter crossovers are always interesting because everybody wants their property to look the best. So it's always a juggling act. Um, there's a Marvel Vision story about the juggling act, which we can get to later about cover number one. Uh, but we can get to that later. So, But that was very exciting uh, for me to do and to learn and to sit down at a table with all these people and just, you know, live my dream of working with them and, you know, Michael Golden, um, you know, Micronauts was a gigantic part of my youth. And when we did the three issue Tet Offensive um, storyline, I said, man, it would be so cool if I could get Michael Golden to come back and do these covers. And Don's like, flipped open his Rolodex and here's his number. Call him. <laughs> I went, I'm sorry, what? Let's just call him. Just tell him what you want. And I called him, and he actually answered the phone. He's like, who are you? I said, I'm Don Daly's assistant. We're doing this. He goes, I'll be up next week. Show me what you want. I said, okay. <laughs> and he was up to do something else, and he came into the office, and I'm like, like oh, my God, it's Michael Golden. I don't know what to do. And I explained it to him what I was doing, and he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And I, I, he walked out and I looked at Don. I said, did he say he would do it? He goes, oh, yeah, he said he would do it. And, you know, he was doing the, the Suicide Run covers. He did the, the NOM covers for me. Uh, and then he wound up becoming Marvel's art director. And those are good times as well. Oh, for sure. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. What was it like? I mean, cause I guess last year they actually reprinted Suicide Run, and I guess to coincide with the Netflix show, they were kind of putting out as much Punisher content as they could. So what was it like to kind of see that collected for the first time in over 20 years? I actually didn't. Oh. Um, I did not. Um, the last thing that Marvel ever sent me, and this is probably because of an ex-girlfriend, uh, was when they reprinted the first six issues of Warzone. I am. Um, I was the assistant editor on those. Um, I did not see the reprint of Suicide Run. I will go hunt that out now. You've just made uh, uh, either Midtown Comics or Amazon very happy. It came uh, out. It came out in August. All right. So I will look for that. Um, that was very funny. Uh, oh, here's a. Was it? Yeah, Suicide Run. So here's a funny Suicide Run story. If you're familiar with it, there's a part in Suicide Run where Frank is about to go up against the Western guy. Okay. And the Western guy has the drop on him. And Frank goes, 
you're not man enough to throw down and slap leather with me. And the Western guy goes, I'm more of a man. And he throws down his guns and Frank shoots him. <laughs> and I remember the... I don't remember who the editor who was signing it out was because another editor had to read the books. But I remember the other editor just going, this is horrible. And I go, he's the Punisher. Hello? He's the <laughs> Punisher. That's what he does. He kills bad guys. So that was that was very exciting. Um, that That's one of the memories I have of that. And then the introduction of the female Punisher, Lynn Michaels, I can still remember this. Um that was good stuff. I actually got to, did I get to draw Lynn? I think I got to ink maybe a page with Lynn on it at one point. Sometime. I did a lot of inking on the side as well. So yeah, that was fun. Now, how did that come about? How did the inking on the side kind of happen? Because, you know, you're, you're working in editorial, but now you're also inking some of the books as well and doing projects here and there. Like how did that come, come about? And what was it about inking that you enjoyed doing? Um, I don't have, I don't, I'm an art major. I'm an art teacher, art teacher for 17 years. My degree is in communication and design technology, which is essentially advertising. Um, I, I will freely admit that I do not have the creativity nor the stamina to pencil. I don't. I love working with brushes and I love working with pens. Um, I got to be inking assistant to two people, uh, three people, I'm sorry, three people. I was an inking assistant to Art Nichols, Mark McKenna, and Joseph Rubenstein. Um, Joe has been a very uh, critical and important part of my comics career, as you saw in The Man Without Fear, where my entire life has almost been a circle around Marvel Age and other things like that. Um, so it's fun for me to ink. I enjoy it immensely. So at the time, Marvel encouraged its on-staff employees to also explore other things, whether it be some of them were writers. Um, Kevin Kobasic was a penciler. Um, others were colorists. So the inking thing was a, it's something that I enjoyed and it made me extra money. It made me spending money because I, again, I was, I was still going to college, uh, at that point as well. And I was paying for my college. So, um, the inking, uh, my first credited inking work is in the NOM. I think it's number 66. Um, And actually, my first credited inking work is, it's not number 66. It's number 64 with a cover by Joe Quesada. Oh, wow. (laughs) Joe Quesada, Don Daly gave Joe Quesada tons of work before he became Joe Quesada. Um, so it's a Joe Casada, Jimmy Pamiotti cover. And the art is the art is the credited anchor and it says inking assist by me. Wow. 
<laughs> then I became, then I started to get my own work from Terry Cavanaugh on the side, solo, just me. Um, and then I became, when I was working for, I don't remember if it was Terry or Don, I don't remember the time frame. But I was helping Mark McKenna because he lived in New Jersey about half an hour away from me. So I was his inking assistant. And then I would trek once a week into Brooklyn to be Joe Rubenstein's inking assistant. So like I always like to say, um, on Infinity Gauntlet number six... Every filled-in black and zipatone is me, <laughs> and Starfield, and Starfield. That's me. Wow, that's pretty awesome. It was pretty wild. I want to fast forward for just a second. Uh, what was it like uh, working with Dan Slott on the Ren and Stimpy show specials? Um, Dan is this incredible human being. That is nothing but an idea machine. He's nothing but an idea machine. And anybody that can harness that has got gold. Um, Working with him on Ren and Stimpy was an absolute pleasure and a joy, even though he got me in trouble with Marvel's legal department, (laughs) with the Ren and Stimpy Choose Your Own Adventure. Um. We had done this Ren and Stimpy Choose Your Own Adventure book. It was a it was an absolute pleasure. It went through everything. It went through legal. It went through proofreading. It went through everything. And then I'm sitting in my office, and I get a call. Uh, phone rang. I pick up the phone. I'm like, hello. It was the person from the legal department. And they're like, we just got a cease and desist order. And I went, for what? Why are you talking to me about this? For your Ren and Stimpy, choose your own adventure. You go, why do we get a Ren? Why do we get a cease and desist order? Because it's trademarked. I went. Oh. I didn't know that. And they're like, "Don't worry about it. We'll take care of it." I said, "Thank you." That is why you have never seen another Ren and Stimpy choose your own adventure book. Interesting. Wow, that's really that's really something. Oh yeah, it was a joy for me. <laughs> like, am I in trouble? No, we'll take care of it. I'm like, okay, thank you. What did Dan say when he found out about that? He laughed. He goes, I had no idea. We were young. We we were young. I mean, you know, we just we just tried to put out books that we thought were enjoyable and fun and you know, I had a blast working on that. I mean, you know, working with Viacom at the time was both pleasurable and a headache. I would get I would get notes back on Ren and Stimpy going that Ren is off model and I would reply, have you even watched the cartoon? <laughs> like, he's off model every other scene. But I learned about, I, I learned, that was a learning process which then helped me later on when I was the editor of the Star Trek books. Because mm. that was probably the reason why I'm bold. Interesting. So well, let's let's. What was it like working on the Star Trek books then? Uh, a dream come true. Almost as much as getting to work at Marvel. Um, my dad and I would watch Star Trek. 
Marvel got the Star Trek license, so that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, they want the Bobby Chase and Polly Watson were taking care of all the Star Trek books. Um, they got behind the eight ball through no fault of their own almost immediately because they had two sets of books. They had the non-likeness books and the likeness books. And the likeness books required double the effort to get put out. So while Vision was still working or being published, I was approached by the publisher, would I be interested in editing the likeness books? And I said, uh, yeah, yes, definitely. Of course. So Bobby and I talked, there was a handoff and I got, um, Star Trek Unlimited, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and then the tentative plan for Star Trek X-Men number two, which at that time was just Star Trek X-Men number two, um, I would like to say that it was my decision to make it next generation, um, but I can't commit to that. <laughs> I can say that the story for it was mine. And then like I wrote in the back of it, I could not write my own book. So I contacted a bunch of writers and they didn't want to take it on. And then I called Dan Abnett and Ian Edgington, and they actually yelled at me, why didn't I call them first? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, it was a score for me to get Carrie Nord to draw it, and it was a score for me to get Scott Koblish to ink it. Mm-hmm. I have three original pages from it that I own. Um, Which pages? Uh, the splash page. Anything with the Enterprise E I have. So mm-hmm. if it's the, it's the double page splash I have, and I think the next page has the Enterprise on it. So if the Enterprise E is on it, it's those pages that I have. Wow, that's awesome. And I actually have a copy of it autographed by Jonathan Frakes. Oh, really? Wow, that's cool. Mm-hmm. What did what did your dad think of of you editing like these Star Trek books? He thought it was fine. He he never really understood it. He didn't understand the process. I think he was I think he was most happy that I was actually doing what I wanted to do. Hmm. I think that's that's what that is something that's what he understood that this is what I was doing. So that's what. He found some content in that. That's fair. As a parent, that's all you really want, right? That's all. Just be happy. What would, um, what were kind of, I guess, what, what were any particular highlights? I mean, you've kind of mentioned some of them, but any highlights of working on those Star Trek books? I mean, it's a lot of red tape sometimes, but uh, was it um, was it worth it? It was horrible. It was it was a joy when it came out, but getting it out was so bad. Um, there were so many issues with character likenesses. Um, 
I had to let artists go because they couldn't get the character likenesses. Um, I did so much to, you know, we worked together as a team, but if you couldn't get the likeness, I, I couldn't keep you. I mean, even if you made the deadline, I couldn't keep you. Um, Star Trek fans are wonderful and a pain in the neck. Um, <laughs> I would get so many letters and emails about that I had the wrong pips, the wrong number of pips on <laughs> on Riker's collar. I'm like, really, <laughs> really? Out of out of out of out of out of 36 pages, this is what you this 24 44 pages. This is what you're picking me on for. Um, there's the infamous Star Trek Unlimited number seven cover. That's the badge cover. Um whole story behind that was Patrick Stewart wouldn't approve his likeness. Um, really? He would not approve his likeness. I had the painter Vince Evans redo it again and again and again and again and again. And finally, I just said, screw it. And I got our production department to do the original badge and the next gen badge and just put it on a black background. And that was that. <laughs> and then later, actually, I did, since I write for the Star Trek magazine now, again, my life is a circle, um, or an infinity loop, whichever you want to think about, <laughs> um, I was able to tell that story and actually show what Vince Evans' cover was. Um, Patrick also... After the cover to Star Trek X-Men, there were two covers for Star Trek X-Men Next Generation. There was the regular cover by Carrie Nord, and there was another painted cover by by Vince Evans. Um, After the painting was done, after it was approved and everything, Patrick asked that he have Picard taken off the cover because he was in talks to be Professor Xavier. Interesting. So he didn't want to be only associated with Star Trek. So we had to change Picard's head to Data's head on the painting. Huh. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. But kind of. I guess that makes sense when you look at it. But because mm-hmm. why else would Data be so front and center? It was Picard. Interesting. Yep. On both covers, we had to change it to make it Picard. Oh wow. That does sound like a lot of work. To make data, sorry, to make it data. Yeah. There were, there. I mean, when, I mean, I always, I always joking, joked around and said that I had a man crush on Jonathan Frakes. So I did a, the Riker special, a story just featuring Riker, mm-hmm. um, which was great. Um, Star Trek Unlimited number 11. I think it's number 11. I think that's the, that's the big, um, telepathy war crossover that we were all a part of. I own the artwork for the entire issue. Oh, wow. Um, I bought it off of Ron and, um, Art Nichols, um, I bought that and I own that and that is a prized possession um, I have original artwork from Marvel's first run on Star Trek. Um, Don was giving the artist, uh, Joe Brzezowski, work. And Joe came to the office one day 
and I had talked to him and I said, Hey, do you have any of those Star Trek, uh, pages? He goes, yeah, let me go home and look. So he went home and came back with a, with a manila envelope with some Star Trek pages. I'm sorry. Star Trek unlimited number 10. I have that entire issue. Um, he came with the manila fold with the Star Trek pages and I was like, you know, gushing over them. And I said, do you want to sell any of these? And he goes, what are you going to do with them? I go, keep them. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, you're not going to take them to a convention and resell them, are you? I'm like, no, why would I do that? He gave them to me. Wow. And I have, to this day, I have them. That's amazing. He gave them to me, handed them right to me. I just, I, I looked at Don and I'm like, what do I do? He goes, shake his hand. I said, okay. <laughs> said, Thank you. Thank you. I got to meet Klaus Jansen. That's a funny story. Klaus was doing some work and he was coming into the office. I knew he was coming into the office. So I brought my copy of um, The Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I'm going to get Klaus Jansen's autograph. And Don looks at me and goes, what did you just say? I said, Klaus Jansen. It's Klaus. <laughs> oh. oh, do you know who else is coming up? I go, no. He goes, Bilson Kevich. I go, oh, you mean the guy who's really long name that draws Moon Knight that I can't pronounce? He goes, yeah, he's coming up too. I said, okay. <laughs> okay. Bill and I still talk on Facebook. It's great. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I guess it's an interesting period too because like the 90s is a – um, I guess a tumultuous period uh, for Marvel, but it's interesting to hear stories about it. I mean, it wasn't, I guess it, it wasn't all bad. No. It wasn't, it, all, I mean, obviously, like you hear stories about, you know, obviously it was fraught and there was periods going on and obviously there were layoffs and there were, you know, a feeling of not always knowing what was going to happen next, but there was still, there was still good work being put out and obviously you still had good experiences throughout, you know, a very fraught period. It was, I was laid off twice. I was let go twice. I was let go in 95 um, when I was a associate editor under Carl Potts. I was editing the Ren and Stimpy books. I was editing Conan. Um, and Marvel had just started to have money problems. Um, they were overextended. Uh, there's books about it. You don't need me to get into the minutiae. Um, so I got let go in January of 95. In that time, I did some freelance work for Joey Cavalieri. And I inked, again, my life is an infinity loop. <laughs> I inked an issue of Star Trek for DC Comics. Uh, I inked issue one of a miniseries and then did not, I inked issue one of a four issue miniseries and did not ink anything else after that because I asked for a finishing rate and yeah, that was a dumb thing for me to do. So, oh well. Now, what is, so that was the first time we get laid off from Marvel. How do you come back? That goes into now. That goes into Marvel Vision. 
Okay. So while I was at Marvel, um, I, uh, I'm a, I tend to be a people person. So I would like to, I liked the company. I talked to everybody in the company. It didn't matter what department you were in, whether you were mailroom or legal. I talked to you. Um, the president at the time, Terry Stewart, was a phenomenally great guy. Um, loved him. He was great. We would pull, we would pull practical jokes together. He was, he was just a wonderful person. Um, I had gotten to know some people in the advertising department. Uh, two people in particular named Jim Brennan and Vito Incorvaya. So I'm home uh, doing, uh, I'm pretty sure I was probably still inking the Star Trek book. And I get a call and it's Jim Brennan. And he tells me that they have an idea for a magazine and he would like me to come in. And I said, you know, I got laid off. He goes, yeah, we know we're a different department. (laughs) Okay. So I went and met with them. We hashed around a few things and shook hands. And I think it was another one of those instances where I got home and then I got a phone call saying that you're hired. I went, okay, there are some things that I want. And I wanted to be, I wanted an editor title and I wanted a raise. And they went, okay. (laughs) And I went, you're kidding me. And I think I was in the offices on the Monday hashing out ideas. They had me involved in focus groups and things like that, working completely with the advertising department. Editorial was um, a help, I don't, uh, a co-conspirator or something, but this was an, this was an advertising department function. Uh, I don't want to say it was trying to be previews and I don't want to say it was trying to be wizard, but we wound up being a little bit of both, um, which caused some problems for me at times. Mm -hmm. Um, wizard didn't like me. They did everything they could to sabotage me. Oh, they thought they saw me as competition, and I'm like, "How am I competition?" I mean, I, I never understood that. I mean, I mean, I would I would talk to because you had people um, dealing with Wizard because Wizard was promoting Marvel stuff too, and I would be like, "I am not competing with them. I'm doing something completely different than them." But they always saw me as competition, so there was always the always the problems of trying to differentiate myself from wizard. Um, much like when I was working on the star Trek books to a lot of fans, a displeasure. 
I was trying to distance myself from the DC run because we were trying to do something. We didn't want to be looked at as a, as an outgrowth of something that had already happened. We mm-hmm. wanted to be something new. Yeah. Um, so Marvel's original Marvel visions, original name was called sponge. That's so terrible. <laughs> it's so terrible. And I remember sitting there just going, no, no, I, no, no. And they had the whole theory. Well, like, you're going to soak up everything Marvel. And I went, no, (laughs) just no, just no. And it got to the point where they looked at me and they were like, yeah, this is kind of why we brought you on. (laughs) And I'm like, just no. And it was probably a combination of myself and the designers who came up with Marvel Vision. So that was the title. Then we had to come up with what we were going to fill it with. And a lot of that credit goes to uh, Jim Kruger and other people in the advertising department. My, my thing that I was all about for a while, well, for the entire run of the thing was the letters pages mm-hmm. and artist versus artist. That was my, that was my deal. Oh, yeah. Kruger was the shepherd of time slip. That was his, that was his brainchild. That was all him. Um, I was for that. I was literally the traffic manager and approval. Um, he would suggest artists and suggest what characters. And I would be like, okay, that sounds fine. That sounds good. He would get the art. I'm like, that's great. That's wonderful. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, I actually own the fantastic four time slip by Jurgens and breeding. Oh wow! I have I have that page. Um, That's awesome. I wrote something about Dan. I was interviewed for something. I don't rem- I don't recall what it was. It was either a bullpen bulletins page or something. And not that it's hard to say anything nice about Dan, but I said something nice about Dan. And he did the he did the time slip. And then he got the artwork back and he sent it back to me. And he said, here you go. Congratulations. <laughs> and I went, oh my gosh, I own an original Dan Jurgens now. I don't know what to do with myself. This is, this, this, this life is great. I, I, I could live this forever. I could. So, um, oh, to go back to what I said about characters want to be, want to be, all their characters want to be in a good life. The cover of Vision number one was Spider-Boy versus Spider-Man. And Dan Jurgens drew that. And it had to go through the Marvel offices and the DC offices. And it went through so many revisions because either Spider-Man was on top or Superboy was on top. Oh, God. Uh, blah, yada, yada, blah, 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 yada, yada. So we finally, finally settled on that cover after a long, long trying you know, you want your first cover to be good. You want everything to be good for your first issue. And there were some there were some blunders in the first issue, 
Um, one article printed very badly. So I offered anybody to write me a letter who didn't, who couldn't read the interview. I would send them a free copy. Um, I got Stan to write something for it, which was wonderful. I still have the, 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 the letter from him for that. And then I think it went on for 33 issues. It was supposed to die by three. Oh, really? Like the, you guys didn't think it would last or? I was, I was informed that they did not expect it to last past issue number three. Wow. Well, it definitely made it. Yeah. I think, I think it made it 30. I don't think it was 33. I think it was 30. Okay. My, yeah, you're probably right. My goal was, I've lived my entire life with people telling me it's not going to happen. So I make it happen. You know, my family, you know, when you're a kid, you tell them you're going to work for Marvel Comics. And they're like, no, you're not going to do that. Think of something else. And then when I got my first business card, I went, ha, there you go. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was a lot of things. It was definitely it was definitely help from Cheryl Rhodes and Jim Sokolowski. They had they had trust and faith in me. Um, and they knew what I was trying to do. And for 30 issues, 30 months, almost three years, I did it. And my, my sole purpose was to just do for Marvel and communicate for Marvel. Uh, I think I said in that, in the man without fear thing that people would read the letters page before anything else, because they wanted to see what I was going to say. <laughs> I well, I can speak as as a reader at that time. So I mean, like I, I think my first Marvel Vision was probably th- around twelve or thirteen, uh, issue twelve or thirteen. So I, I was maybe like I, I don't mean to make you feel older, but I think I was probably twelve, thirteen years old. That's fine. Um, but it, it was big for me because like I had just. I think I'd finally discovered a comic book store. Um, like I had been buying off spinner racks and uh, back when they were still a thing or like at a convenience store and then finally finding a comic book store and starting to go on a regular basis and then being able to have this magazine that was kind of telling me everything that was going on at Marvel was really cool because I didn't have enough money to buy everything. And, um, so it was a great kind of entry point to learn things. And I mean, I, not that I in any way agree that sponge is a good name, but it definitely did help, um, a new kind of nascent fan soak everything up about Marvel and kind of learn things that I probably would not have been able to pick up otherwise because I wouldn't have been able to necessarily pick up those books. And it's interesting reading what you had, uh, the interview at Man Without Fear, that you kind of said that you didn't like that the solicitations were part of the, the magazine, but as a hated kid, it. I loved it. <laughs> hated it. Hated it. Hey, I cannot hate enough. Um, the problem with the solicits, they always, they always made the book almost late. Hmm. Always made the book almost late because, you know, you're, 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 I'm relying on people that I, that I have no control over. I can't tell, I can't tell Bobby Chase to get me your solicits fast enough. I can't tell Ruben Diaz, get me your solicits. You, you're at the whim of the editors. It's not their fault either. It's, 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 it's the nature of the business. 
Um, and poor Kevin Tang would have to type these things out and get them to me at the last possible minute. Um, you're waiting for artwork to come. I mean, that poor guy was there for hours and hours at night. Um, you know, I would, you know, I, I said in the interview, you know, uh, the man without fear, I mean, the custodians would have to kick me out. But there were times I'm like, Kevin, good night. I, I got to go home. I live in New Jersey. I got to go home. Um, and then you come in the next day and it's like, Kevin, did you sleep here? Probably. Maybe. I don't remember anymore. Oh, God. Um, so I hated the solicits, hated, but they were a necessary evil for me to keep going. And you've got to play the game. If you, you've, you've got to play the game. Mm -hmm. Um, there were times that I could play the game. There were times that I didn't play the game. Um, daredevil, I didn't play the game. Um, um, Dracula, I didn't play the game, um, which probably hurt me at some point, but it's fine. I, you know, it is what it is. I don't, I, things happened. It's fine. Um, but I wanted, when I discovered comic scene, that was like, wait a minute, this is how this is done. <laughs> and, you know, I have students, and they live in the computer age, and I understand that. But I will bring pages that I inked, and they refuse to believe that I did it. They <laughs> refuse because they think everything is done on a computer, everything. Yeah. And I'm like, no, this is my inks. And I can sit there and then show them. And it's like their minds are blown. Um, and that was, you know, seeing to the inking thing in that one comic scene that I talk about in Man Without Fear, where you've got the, the Keith Pollard Hulk inked by four different people. And I learned a gigantic thing back then. Oh, a, another thing that happened at Marvel, not only did I get to work with John Byrne, I got to meet Terry Austin oh, wow. and I had to share a floor with Chris Claremont. So there's your X-Men 141 and 142 people. <laughs> and I met Louise Simonson, who was the editor. Gosh, I can't remember who the letterer was. I want to say Orzakowski was the letterer. It was, yeah. All right. Orzakowski was the letter and probably Glynis Ween was the colorist. I'm not sure about the colorist. It's terrible. Glynis was the colorist. I actually got to work with Glynis. Wow. So, so everybody, everybody in X Men 141 and 142, I wound up working with or meeting at some point. That's a great little bucket list you have there. Um, <laughs> I you know I, I did not have a sucky time. I, I didn't. It was, it was the. Uh, to quote Star Trek, to quote Dickens, it was the best the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was. Question about Marvel Vision. So, I mean, so Kruger comes up with Time Slip. Did you mm -hmm. know, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned like kind of how you greenlit it, but how quickly did you realize that that was 
going to be a thing that would, you know, eventually, you know, you guys at Marvel put out a collection of all the time slips kind of in, in one book. When did you, know, when, did, when did you know that was going to, that Don't was forget the one shot. Yes. The one shot. Absolutely. Coming of the Avengers. That's right. Well, when did um, you, when did you know this was going to be a thing or how quickly did you know that this was going to latch on and become like a staple of the book? I'm going to wind up linking him with this interview at some point, but Jim Kruger is another one like Dan Slott. He's a walking idea fountain. They just they just come, they're just there. And if you can attach yourself to Jim Kruger, you're gonna see talent and you're gonna see creativity. He knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he wanted to do for a long time and because of the machinations, hierarchy, whatever of Marvel, they only saw him as editorial. I'm sorry, advertising. That's all they saw him as. And I want to say that I had the foresight to see that he was more, but he was also just honestly great on getting me stuff on time. He was. And that was that was a good thing for me. And then when you when you meet somebody and you and they it is Glennis Oliver was the color. When you meet somebody and they've got this talent, you just the trick is to just let them go. Just don't get in their way. Don't bog them down. Run interference for them if they need it. Just let them be themselves. And he was really, really good at that. And he actually corrected me once when he had Jeff Smith do the Silver Surfer. And this was probably one of the stupidest moves that I've ever done as an editor. Um, Jeff Smith of Bone fan, that Jeff Smith, mm-hmm. um, did the Silver Surfer and the artwork came in and I looked at it and I was like, I don't like this. It was the first one that I didn't like. And I didn't like it. And Kruger said, call Jeff and tell him you don't like it. And I went, okay, I did. And I called Jeff and I told him that I didn't like it. And, and I asked him if he would redo it. And he said, no. Wow. He said, this is, this is what I want to do. And then I had to realize that in the position that I was in as the editor of Time Slip, where I was letting creators do their own version, my opinion didn't matter. It didn't matter. This was his creation. And I said, he goes, if you don't want me to do it, I'm not doing it. Send my artwork back. And I went, no, you're right. It runs as is. 
And you have to, you have to listen. You have to be an umpire. You have to be a referee, but you have to listen because these are creative people. Um, you know, you read in that, you read in the man without fear. Um, that flying blind story should never have happened. It should never have happened. It could have happened in another way had the previous editor been a bit of a referee or an umpire. Because you're responsible for a Marvel character who's in continuity. Time slip was never in continuity. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to let a creator do something creatively that nowhere fits in the continuity, get them to do a bookshelf, get them to do a graphic novel, and just leave the continuity alone. And that's that was a big edit. I learned I learned a couple of things being an editor, um, and hopefully I was able to do that with my own freelancers. Mm-hmm. I have a, a general uh, Marvel Vision question. Um, of all the, the different kind of covers you guys had commissioned um, for that book, what was kind of your, your favorite? Just, I know it's like choosing your children, but maybe it, which it, oh, oh no, it's it's it, oh it's it's the Star Trek X Men one. Okay, <laughs> it's it's the Carrie North Star Trek X Men one. Um, I Carrie was amazing, is amazing. I still am in contact with him. Um, Marvel friends are forever friends. I've said this multiple times on Facebook. Um, Carrie, um, two Star Trek stories. When Carrie sent in his model sheet, Patrick Stewart said he could draw me forever. Oh, wow. And when Andrew Curry sent his model sheet in for the Riker special, Jonathan Frake said he could draw me forever. <laughs> um, you know, you, you find the right people, you pick the right people. Your goal is to make people happy. That's your goal. Whether it be the readers your licensors, your licensees, you, 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 you've got to figure out the way to make people happy. That causes you the least amount of stress. For sure. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, another kind of random Marvel vision question is, uh, how did you, um, how did you meet up with, or how did you get Steve Weissman to start doing his strips in the, uh, the latter years of the book? You lost me. Uh, you mean Cleopolis? No, uh, is it? Is it, I don't. You know, I'm actually. I'm looking at. I no. I, I think I am thinking of. Uh, it's the original mini, mini Marvels. But, oh, oh wait, was that G Russo? No. Well, you know what? I'm actually. I'm looking at a reprinting of Marvel Vision 25, and it mentions that someone named Steve Weissman. Oh my gosh! Let me go grab one. Hold on. You guys had a strip. It, it was Mini Marvels by Ribs. Something I can't remember. Alright, let's see. Marvel Vision 25. Oh, that's the Bachalo cover. Yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> that was Joy. <laughs> All right, let's see. Mini Marvels. 
Or it might have been Lil Marvels at the time. Because they, they reprinted a p- part of Marvel Vision 25 in a recent trade paperback from a couple of years ago. And it had, uh, and there, there's a, a page for Marvel Vision 25. Oh, the By the Sea. Mini Marvels by Ribs. That's Kruger. Is it? That's Kruger. Steve Weissman. That's Kruger. I'm telling you, he. I could almost consider him a co editor on this. Um, he was, I mean, he was just amazing. I mean, he would, he would bring me these things and I'd be like, this is cool. This is great. This is wonderful. Steve Weissman. Oh yeah. Look at that. Cause there was a number of them. Like cause in the last few issues, I think starting with issue 25, but in issue 26, 27, 28, uh, and 30, there was more of these, these strips he did. And I was just always curious about them because they're really good and they're really like fun and entertaining. And a few years ago, they got reprinted in the uh, Young Marvel, Little X-Men, Little Avengers, Big Trouble trade paperback, kind of out of nowhere. Oh my gosh, I'm flipping through this. Look at this. There's a San Diego scrapbook. <laughs> There's me with my Ace Fraley action figure. Yeah, look at that hair. <laughs> oh my gosh, those radar glasses. Oh yeah, that got me in trouble. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, those are the days. No, I did not remember that one. There you go. Um, that was probably Kruger. Uh, probably. Um, things, things, that were, things that were out there. Things that were out there were him. I think that's why on this, on this thing, he and I have made a pretty good team of coming up with ideas. Um, he was... I'm the superhero guy. I am. Uh, I'm I'm the men in tights guy. Uh, I love the superheroes. I love that. Jim, he was out there. I mean, I remember when he proposed foot soldiers to Marvel. Um, And Marvel turned him down. Hmm. And he went to Image. And he was still working for Marvel when Image did foot soldiers. And there were people in the offices who were mad at him. And I was one of his biggest defenders. I'm like, um, he's he's self-publishing this, people. This is coming out of his pocket. Sorry. Um, take your take your criticisms else, elsewhere. Like, sorry, we passed on this. You know, blah. Um, he actually asked me to write um, something for one of the. I don't know if it was for uh, a, a, one of the collections or. Or something, and it was it was so funny. Um, I, I I the thing that I wrote were was is Jim Kruger a foot fetishist? <laughs> and he looked at the title, and his face was like, "What?" And I go, "Just read it. Just read it. Just read it." And he read it. And he looked at me and he went, thank you. I said, no problem. I said, no problem, man. You take that. No problem. So, yeah, that was probably that was probably him. Julio, my assistant at the time, uh, was the one to get me to do, to get um, Chris Eliopoulos uh, to start doing the cartoons toward the end. Um probably starting around maybe 27 
those cartoons with me being like a foot and a half tall. <laughs> like, thank you, Chris. Um, yeah, I'm taller than Chris Eliopoulos, and he still did that. That's all right. <laughs> when Marvel Vision was kind of ending, like as you said, you guys never really expected to get past issue three, level on thirty issues. What was it like when you guys decided it was like when Marvel decided to pull the plug? Like, what was the uh, the kind of the feeling in the air? Had the book kind of run its course? Were they just financially not able to support it at that point, or what was kind of the reason given for shut, you know shutting it down? There were there were some reasons that I have my own belief upon. Um, um, politics, office po- office politics was involved. Um, they wanted something else. Um, they wanted something cheaper. They wanted something done by somebody else. Mm. And I was fine with that. I'm like, you're, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I mean, you're not. Um, but the irony of it is that the book, the last issue of Marvel Vision at $2, $1.99, still sold more than the first issue of the thing that replaced it. What replaced it? It was this thing, I think it was called Marvel Spotlight. Oh, um, yeah. Bill yeah. Roseman did it. Uh, and it was, it was, I think, I think they were selling it for 99 cents. Mm-hmm. And the last issue of Vision outsold it by like, Fifteen or, tw- or fifteen thousand copies. Wow! And I just went, "Yep, there you go, bye." Hmm. And then I was left with Star Trek and Daredevil and Men in Black and Conan. Um, and the Star Trek license. We lost the Star Trek license. Then Marvel Knights came in and took Daredevil away from me. Conan was in between uh, stories. Men in Black was in between stories. We had already we had already solicited a new Men in Black story, and I was working on Dracula. Lord of the Undead. Mm-hmm. We had just oh, it's Seeker three thousand, which was a which was a, a, a vanity project of mine, and uh, we had just finished the last issue of Dracula. Tom Palmer came in and took Glenn Greenberg, Ralph Macchio, and myself to lunch at the Society of Illustrators. We came back from lunch. My assistant was at his desk crying. This was when the layoffs were happening every Wednesday, uh, 1998, October. I went to my phone. It was blinking. The voicemail said, come down to human resources. I went down and said, where do I sign? Hmm. And that was that. Wow. Hmm? 
quite a it's quite a decade. <laughs> it was uh I you know, I look back and I'm like I still sometimes go really? I did this? So when I was a kid, my first introduction to Conan was that Conan Treasure Edition with Rogues in the House and Red Nails. And, oh crap, I got to edit Conan <laughs> and work with Roy Thomas and John Dusema. Oh crap. Um, I remember working on Conan the Usurper and I said to Chuck Dixon, I said, Chuck, this is what I got. Page one, Conan in a bar with a blonde on his lap. Page 66, Conan on a throne with a dead blonde on his lap. Give me the 64 pages in between. <laughs> he went, okay. And that's how, and that story is how he became king of Aquilonia. Um, I look at, you know, the X-Men and then working with all of those people. Um, you know, being part of that, using, you know, even though I didn't work on the Fantastic Four, I got to stick to Baxter building in Star Trek Next Generation, Star Trek Next Generation, um, when it was for Freedom's Plaza. Um, so many things, you know, when I was a kid, I got that Marvel premiere with Seeker 3000 in it. And then I actually convinced them to let me do a four-issue Seeker 3000 book. Um, so many things that we had on the plate. Um, it's so humorous that I actually proposed restarting the entire Marvel Universe from scratch. <laughs> and then being told that nobody would ever do that. Oops. Oops. What's that? Every other month? Feels like it sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, we look, it was, it was when Marvel was, I think the 35th anniversary of Marvel. I don't remember, but I said, we need to restart the universe from scratch, every single title. And I've got the way to do this. And people read it. This, this makes sense. We could, we could do this. And then it getting to the higher ups going, Nobody's ever going to restart a universe. What are you kidding me? We can't do this. We've got continuity. <laughs> and I went, okay, but the continuity that you had is still going to be there. It's not going anywhere. It's like it's like it's like when people screamed about J.J. Abrams destroying Star Trek. I'm like, did your Blu-rays and DVDs just die? <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. I'm just giving you basically a restart. Of the universe. That's all. Now it's what's what's Punisher on volume like eighteen thousand, something like that. <laughs> it's ludicrous. It's like, can, can, just stop with the renumbering, people. Please, please, I beg of you, please. Uh, no, I do recommend that people listening do go check out your interview with Man Without Fear. They did with. Uh, I guess what six seven years ago now because um, it is a treasure trove of great information and I I because you you went through it so thoroughly I'm not going to have you uh, you know go back into the, the wound that is flying blind um, but I do want to ask a, no it's fine no no <laughs> well, probably hear that it, it, it was 
it it was an open wound. It was, it, you know, I like Daredevil. I I you know Frank Miller's Daredevil was amazing, um, but it was actually John Romita Jr.'s Daredevil and Anne Nascenti and Al Williamson that galvanized my Daredevil love. And here I am getting to edit Daredevil and you're handing me this story that makes no sense at all, at all. And it was just, I, I can't, I can't put my name on this. And then being told, if you don't put your name on it, you're fired. Oh, wow. Like, like, oh yeah, you're, you don't put your name on this. And, and you gotta remember, this is also the company that has used as titles, Alan Smithy, many hands, (laughs) um, you know, that, that's been there. And, you know, I didn't know what Alan Smithy was until I started working at Marvel. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's the credit you put when you don't own it. I said, oh, so I could put Alan Smithy on Daredevil 376 and I'll be fine. And it's like, you do that, you're fired. Like, okay, that's all I need to know. Now, as, so, you, as you've said, you were brought in late on the process. You inherited um, a bit of a train wreck. Um, mm-hmm. What I found more interesting is what you were able to do with issue 380 because you, you, you get stuck with something that you didn't want. Um, you know that the book is, a, is by that point about to end and about to be, you know, become what we now know as Marvel Knights is going to, is going to be coming up. So what was your lead time in at least putting together a good 380 and then being able to put together a good team? I had four months. I had four months and I had four months. Um, in the interview on Man Without Fear, I basically say, I'm in this, I'm stuck, I'm going to do something big. There were already rumors about Marvel Knights coming on. So like I say, why you would give me Daredevil with five months left to go, I don't know. But whatever. So Julio and I, what could we do? What could we do? Who could we get? Who could we get? Dan Chichester and Lee Weeks. Just the names kept cut. We kept circling around. We're not going to get Frank Miller. Um, John was doing something else. Um, probably to my stupidity, I didn't even think of Anne. But we just kept coming back to Dan and Lee. To Dan and Lee. I had talked to Dan before. And I called him up, and he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go back there. And I said, please, 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 please. I kind of gave him a little bit of the ins and outs of what was going on. And he said, if you can get Lee to do it, I'll do it. So I called up Lee. Lee didn't want to do it. If you can get Dan to do it, I'll do it. (laughs) And I'm going, this cannot literally be happening. I'm looking at Julio going, this cannot be happening. Lee, he's going to do it. Are you sure? Lee, I'm not going to lie to you. You're Lee Weeks. I'm not going to lie to you. And I got the commitment out of them. And 
I went to the publisher and I said, I need a double-sized issue for 380. I got Dan Chichester and Lee Weeks. And he goes, you got it. We're not even going to run a P&L on it. You've got it. I said, great. So as I'm still shepherding Flying Blind with now two completely different art teams, I've got 380 in the works. So I was working on 377, 378, 379, and 380 all at the same time in different ways, shapes, and forms all at the same time Mm -hmm. just of how I had to do it. I guess it helped that 380 was so separate from Flying Blind because Flying Blind was going to just reset the status quo anyway. Flying Blind was indicative of what of why Heroes Reborn and Marvel Knights happened, in my opinion. I cannot say this for the company that I used to work for, but if you look back at all of those stories during that period of time, they were essentially inconsequential. Everything reverted back to the status quo almost immediately. So here with Daredevil... You had this four-issue story that at the end of the four issues, you are back to where you were before the four issues even occurred. So why? what's the bother? What's the point? Um, let's get Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld and Jimmy Palmiotti and Joe Casada and let them do stuff. I mean, if they're going to do stuff that's inconsequential, let's at least get them to do stuff that's inconsequential that looks really, really, really good. That we don't have to pay health insurance on. Hmm. I mean, seriously, that's that's how I felt it, it 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 went down, and I don't I don't fault them for doing it. I I I said in the interview, I fault the management for not trusting us, not giving us the benefit of the doubt. We could have done Marvel could have done what they did. We could have. We were just. There was just people didn't want to break out of the box. Um, I'm a gigantic continuity freak. I love continuity. I I loved the little boxes. See issue number, blah blah. Editor. Mm-hmm. I love. I I live for that stuff. But I also had no problem saying we need to restart the entire universe. We we need to restart the entire universe. We have to. And Marvel went through some pretty, you know, strange times. I mean, there's stuff in the early 2000s that I... Yeah, no. (laughs) Yeah, no. No. I mean, I dropped X-Men because it was unreadable. Um, I have a, I have a complete run of Fantastic Four, and the only reason why I have that is because I have a complete. Well, no, I have a complete run of Fantastic Four from one hundred to whatever the last issue was, four thirty three or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are there are portions of that that were unreadable. 
but it was just Fantastic Four, and I love the Fantastic Four. I love the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Um, that's probably the one thing that I was never able to to work on. I got to ink the thing. I got to stick Four Freedoms Plaza in an issue, but I didn't get to work on the Fantastic Four. That's that's that 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 would have been on my bucket list that I didn't hit. But they were they were difficult difficult times indeed. Now you kind of alluded to it, but like when when you leave Marvel, how did you know that like that was it for the industry? Like you're you're going to move on to something else? Like that? Like what was that like at that point? Like I I think in, I your man, in the Man Without Fear interview you mentioned that you know you had interviewed with other places and then kind of moved on. And what was that process like? Um, I interviewed uh, uh, humorously enough. I interviewed uh, with Wizard. They actually called me in for an interview and then didn't want anything to do with me. I, I don't know. They're probably just yanking my chain. Hmm. Um, I interviewed at DC. And then that was that. That was done. Um, I went. I, I just. I don't want to say I was burned. Because it always, it always comes like you're burned, like you're done. But I just didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like what happened. And I, as I said in the, um, the Man Without Fear interview, once Mark Grunewald died, um, the, the air went out of the sails. The air was sucked out of the building. The joy was sucked out of the building. Um, so it became a different place. It became... It, it 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 wasn't a comic book company. It was a comic production company. If you understand what I mean, mm-hmm. all we were doing was putting out product. That's all we were doing. Um, you know what book can Wolverine guest star in now? Um, you know it, it, it became ridiculous. You know I admit that I I I sarcastically tongue-in-cheek everybody knew what i was doing when i put wolverine on the cover of issue number two everybody who knew me knew what i was doing Mm -hmm. and i think i think on one thing one issue i think i actually slapped gratuitous something cover (laughs) Um, because that's that as a fan it was that kind of stuff that I loved. I loved the fourth wall breaking. Mm-hmm. And I was there tail end of that period where that was strongly discouraged. Strongly. That we, we were no longer voices. Mm. Um, you know, letters pages went away. And here I am with a four page letters page. Um, the opposite of where the company was going was where I wanted to go. Um, I tried to answer every letter. Um, and even if I didn't answer a letter, I printed your name. Um, I, I had a vision, no pun intended, (laughs) that the, 
Marvel at the time didn't share. Now, looking at it right now, there are some people there at the company that share that vision. Pun intended. There are letters pages again. Mm-hmm. The letters pages have a personality. Um, there are there are comic books that are funny, comic books that are humorous. Um, I like that. Um, when my daughter gets older, I'm going to sit her down in a room and say, you are going to read every one of these Ms. Marvels. You are going to read them and you are going to understand them. Because not only do I love that book so much, it takes place in Jersey City where I was born. <laughs> so all the places that G. Willow Wilson is writing about, I know. I was there. I did my student teaching at what she's calling Cole's High School. Oh, really? Yes. That's awesome. So, and, like, I was talking to, well, Jeffrey Moy and I were back and forth on Facebook, and it's like, Ms. Marvel is like Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And I want my daughter to understand that and to see that process go with how a superhero becomes a superhero. And that kind of makes me happy again for comics. Um, my students asked me a couple weeks ago, um, Mr. Tui, would you ever go back to work for Marvel? And I didn't even miss a beat. And I said, no. I said, no. Would you work for DC? Absolutely not. Where I would go would be either IDW or Boom. Hmm. Because while I still like the men in tights and the women in tights, I'm kind of now a little bit going in the Jim Kruger way of out there stuff. I'm trying to dabble a little bit. And I'm also still a giant fan of licensed properties. And um, the editor of the Star Trek books is my hero. She's amazing. The stuff she gets done. Uh, I told Tony, I, I said to Tony Shastin, I wish that I had had him when I was working on the books. Um, and anybody that's got the Planet of the Apes license, they can have me. <laughs> you can have me. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. Can I please work with Gabriel Hardman just once, please? Yeah. Please? Dark Horse. I wanted to work for Dark Horse. In between, in, uh, when I got laid off in uh, 95, I entertained just packing up everything and moving to Oregon. And just sitting on Dark Horse's doorstep and being like, I'll work for, you know, I'll erase pages. I'll do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have one last Marvel Vision question. Go for it. At least for today. I'm sure I will pepper you over the course of the coming months with more Facebook questions as I think of them. But um, this is more of a random one. Um, whose idea was it to uh, to use the Ron Garney Captain America piece that had already been published before on a Marvel Vision cover, but throwing a Santa hat on him? Be me. I think it was number. I think it was issue like twenty seven or something. That would probably be me. <laughs> I always liked that. I don't know why. It just—it was always one of those things that seemed like 
it was kind of <laughs> a weird choice, but I liked it a lot. There again, I we were taking ourselves too seriously, and you know, you look back at all that seventies, eighties Marvel stuff—the stuff that got me into it—and it wasn't existing. Um, you know, I tried to pepper in humor. I tried to do things. Um, Star Trek X-Men, um, Next Generation X-Men, you know, I, I stuck in the joke. Um, when, um, they're at the X-Mansion and Wolverine and somebody are arguing about something and I think, I think it was Storm or somebody goes, boys, and then later on in the story, um, Worf and Riker are arguing about something and Crusher goes, boys, you know, I tried to make these little humorous things um, stick in. Um, you know, I wanted to do Julio. Um, he, I let him do a lot of stuff. You know, I tried, you know, I, I I had my own like little assistant editor month in my office with him. Uh, he, I let him do stuff like, like I was let to do stuff. Um, I look at, I looked at Marvel vision as, you know, the new Marvel age. Marvel age was fun. Gosh, I loved Marvel age. I mean, clearly I loved Marvel age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I loved Marvel age. I loved comic scene. I loved, um, I think it was uh, David Anthony Kraft's comic interview. I loved those things. And I just wanted people not only to enjoy the books, but to see how much fun it was making the books. I mean, we are now unfortunately in a, in a time where that fun will never, ever happen again. When I was Don's assistant and Mark Teixeira was doing Ghost Rider, um, he would just have the book done in layouts. And literally, he would get, oh, by the way, I just realized I was Jimmy Palmiotti's assistant as well. Um, <laughs> He would get Michael Bear, Jimmy Palmiotti, Kevin Kobasic, anybody in the bullpen that could hold a brush. And they would have these filing cabinets that were about chest high. And he would have all the pages laid out. And you would leave at five o'clock. And you would come back the next morning at 9 o'clock to sleeping bodies on the floor (laughs) and a finished comic book. And that was magic. You know, they talked about, you know, how John Byrne and Frank Miller and Walt Simonson would go to the office and, you know, show each other their pages and try to outdo each other. That's gone. Yeah. That's that's gone. That magic is gone. And that's sad. Um, 
And when I had vision, I wanted people to see how much fun and magical it was, as corny as that sounds. Because it was to me, because I was this little kid who, you know, Fantastic Four, Batman, and then, you know, I got X-Men 141 and 142 in a trade with some kid. I traded him something, and he gave me these two, and I still have both of them. And I remember opening up, and I actually, I actually used the Claremont Byrne X-Men as guides for when we were doing Voyager Splashdown. I told the writer, I requested of the writer, I don't say I told. I requested of the writer. I said I wanted to be like those burn, those Claremont Burn X Men issues. I want the opening page to be some type of recap, and I want to open up on a double page spread every issue. She went. I can do that. I said great. There you go. Hmm. So those influences. You know, they, 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 I, I always wanted something that I remember. I wanted to do, when I got Conan, I wanted to redo, and this is a stupid idea, but I wanted to redo Red Nails. And I wanted Roy Thomas to write it, and I wanted John Romita Jr. to draw it. And John was up for it. And... The reason why I wanted John was because of the issue that he did, the two issues that he did in the X-Men with Cool and Goth. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, John could do this. John would be great. And John and I had worked together on Punisher Warzone. Um, there's a whole string of Punisher War Journal covers that John Romita Jr. did that I was the editor of. So John and I had a relationship. And then, you know, I proposed it, and then I was told that there's no way we're going to redo a story that's already been done. And, you know, I, I, I said, you're making a mistake. I said, this is a golden opportunity. No, we're not going to do it. Dark Horse gets the Conan license. What's the first thing they do? The Frost Giant's daughter. I lost my mind. Lost my mind. I wrote. I wrote. I wrote a letter to the editor. It was my first. Uh, my first actual. First actual letter writer. As a letter writer, I wrote to Conan at Dark Horse, and it got printed. Oh, really? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Well, Tim, thank you so much for for taking time no out of your day today and to to uh you know revisit this time of your life and uh as i said like i was a huge fan of marvel vision i was just being able to cool being able to chat with you about it because again it it meant a lot to me where i was at that point because again it gave me this window into the rest of the marvel universe and what was going on and again 
being able to, as much as they were a pain in the ass for you to put together, being able to read this, even just the solicits and have, uh, you know, this idea of what else was going on in the Marvel Universe as a kid on a very strict budget uh, was very cool. And being able to see all these features and all these interviews and, and learning all this stuff about this universe, it was an, a tremendous window for a young reader who wanted to learn more and was just eating it all up and was a sponge, even though thankfully it wasn't called that. I, 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 and, you know, of course, in hindsight, you understand how important that was. You know, I remember going to a, a comic book shop in Bayonne, and I, I remember this place clearly. Um, gosh, I remember it. I would get my father to drive me there every Saturday, and he actually had all the books already bagged and boarded. So you couldn't open them. So you didn't know what was inside. So as a kid on a limited budget, I'm looking at the covers going, what do I buy? Which, what's going to happen in this one? And, you know, had I had solicits and previews that then I probably would have gotten more than I did. But I, I, yeah, I understand. I do. I'm glad I could have helped. <laughs> you definitely did. So thank you for that. And thank You're you for, welcome. And thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem. Anytime. Let me know.